Greetings! Welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of the Write Write Podcast, your weekly pep talk on living the writing life. I am Elon. I'm John. And I'm Craig. And today we're going to be talking about the other 70% of the iceberg. And uh, for those of you who might not know the reference, there is a theory, a well-known adage perhaps in writing, whereby world building is like an iceberg, and that you can only see the 30% of it that is sticking above the water surface, but as an author, you have done the work to build the complete iceberg, all 100%, 70% of which isn't even seen by the reader. But because you have done that work and you have invested that time into your world, it feels more lived in. Now, it's not a universally held belief, and I think that there is merit to both approaches. Uh, when it comes to doing really robust world building and doing uh, only superficial world building, because it's more than a little possible to make a world seem lived in without deciding what color each of the currency flavors are, you know? Uh, Because what makes a world feel lived in isn't the amount of details necessarily in the world, it's how people in your stories respond to those details. So you might only include one detail about the smell of something, For instance, you know, a person's walking in a marketplace and they smell cardamom. Their reaction to that scent, maybe it triggers a memory from their childhood about a place that you never even brought up in the story, but that reaction brings into existence the idea in the reader's mind that there is world building that you have done that might not even be there. Um, And the effect is the same without you having to decide who the king was of that place 700 years before the events of the story. But... I don't want to say that to disparage world building. I know that it's a thing that a lot of people really enjoy doing. Uh, So what I wanted to ask, and this is great because in the last episode, we talked a little bit about this with John about his toolbox because he's using uh, a wiki now to manage his sort of world building materials. Uh, How much of the world you both build when you write? Um, And either of you can start, but I did bring John up first. So that kind of logically follows. (laughs) Well, the first thing I want to say is for this whole, I mean, I, I totally agree that it can go both ways. It depends on your preference. You can get rich stories by pure world building. Um, in fact, I know I know a writer who is completely oriented in world building, and he's, he plays D&D and sort of comes from that aspect and, and finds rich stories from the process of world building, which he then wants to write, um, which is... The, the opposite of what a lot of writing instructors will tell you. They'll say, don't get, you know, tell the story. The world building is different. Uh, it will come from it. So it's not, that's that's kind of a bit of a biased opinion. I mean, I think the point they're making in those things is um, you, if you want to write stories, you have to sit down and write a novel. And if you just do world building and never write the novel, the novel's not going to get written. I think that's the kind of, the point they're getting at. It's not saying that, you shouldn't do world building or you're never going to get writing done. There's just a balance you have to strike. Um, I, I'm actually a bottom-up world builder, so there's two types, like what the, where you build the world, all the, the stuff first, and then you fill the writing, and that's top-down. Bottom-up is where you just go in there and write. Um, and I like what you said, Elon, about um, how it's sort of how the characters relate to the details. There's two things I do um, that I... I think are what create a sense of deep world, even though I'm making it up as I go. Um, Be specific and be consistent. So whenever you're going in details, 
map something right down like you know don't just say he smelt scotch on his breath to say the scotch of myrna or something like that okay what's that you know now and the reason it smells like the scotch of myrna is because a particular spice that this person recognizes because of something that they had done and you don't need to actually know any of what that stuff means but if you said it and then you say it again sometime then it's like whoa this person knows that stuff that's right yeah i mean in in a thousand roads this kind of emerged in the recent draft um one of the uh important characters is a man named barrack and he's from the pikelands and I'm continually referencing horses and um, huts made of, like, timber, like log, log cabins. They're almost like the Anglo-Saxon settlements. But whenever they're talking, there's, like, wood metaphors and, and things like that. And, and, you know, it's sort of like a, I could have him just say, give advice, but why not have something that relates to, you know, their, their way of life and their culture? And I haven't, I have, I have, I don't have a file where I've mapped out the Pikeland culture. It's just... I'm being specific, and then I'm trying, making sure that I'm being consistent. And so when you hover over everything, the details knit together like some, some kind of intricate weaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you can tinker with them as you go. Like, I, uh, I think uh, George R. I feel like I said this, but I don't think I did. George R. R. Martin completely makes it up. He mm-hmm. doesn't have any world-building system. Uh, at least he says he does very little, and I think uh, at least what I've gathered from his interviews is um, he just writes the stories. He's very specific, and he keeps track of it in his head. Um, so, I mean, he's probably regarded as one of the most intricate world builders uh, in the fiction that's out there, and, and that's coming from someone that's sort of just making making very specific references but also making sure they all hang together really well. How about you, Craig? Do you have a... Uh, my world building is kind of all over the place. I was going to say all over the map, but that's a bit much of a pun for this. Um, <laughs> when I write uh, erotica or adult fiction, um, there's really no world building that goes into that, especially since it's shorter things, and shorter things don't take a lot of world building. Um, I do have a sci-fi novel that's on the back burner um, that did take quite a bit of um, world building, but I would just be repeating what John said, basically. So I do want to mention that with my thriller, which is also a back burner project, um, it doesn't require world building so much as it requires world research because it's based on actual history in the world, actual landmarks. And so I needed to research like um, what the weather is like in a certain part of the year in Nunavut, Canada, um, I had to research what's known about the Franklin Expedition, which is a famous sunken ship here in Canada. Um, international uh, intelligence sharing um, organizations and um, agreements um, that exist between Canada and other nations. Um, and then it's going to involve like news stories, like there was a deer in Russia that had been frozen in the permafrost and because of global warming it's melting and it's releasing anthrax into the air. Um, There's a monument somewhere in the States that um, basically gives instructions for how to survive an apocalypse and it's written in six languages and it's this mysterious stone monument that no one knows how it got there. I've heard of that thing. Yeah, it tells you what to do if there's like 500 people left in the country or something like that. I'd have to research the details. I didn't get that far, but I do remember. Um, And so it requires a lot of this picking out 
actual real world stuff and then making believable connections between them mm-hmm. because all of these things are not connected at all but in the thriller project that i've got they're all very much connected um so it's a bit of a different take on world building that some authors who are listening to this i'm sure relate to uh mm-hmm. if you write anything contemporary so mystery romance thriller um you're gonna I mean, i'm working on a for instance a historical fiction piece uh mm-hmm. and it's set in the year 1694 uh, and I have created a, uh, a secret society of scientists and artists uh, that is attempting to subvert, like, you know, they they essentially have been uh, holding on to, uh, to to secret human knowledge for a while and stuff like that. And there's a, the main character wants to become a part of that secret society uh, because he has a, a, a theory that he thinks might might be able to change the world. Um, and as a result, I've started doing all this research about what life was like at the time. And I've come up, I've come across things that I had no knowledge of previously and that would radically change the story and make it much more interesting. For instance, uh, I went to an exhibition at the Getty Museum in in Los Angeles, uh, that I, I just was like a, a friend of my parents was curating it and I didn't really know anything about what it was about. And I went and it was all about what's called the edible feast. Uh, these massive feasts were held all through Europe that were like totally ostentatious and ridiculous, uh, where there were like towers built of food and like they would make wine fountains and people would get like naked in the streets. And it was like decadent, insane wonderland. And they built like, they built stuff out of, uh, I think it's called like sugar plaster. It's similar to porcelain, but like the food, it's like the dishes were all technically edible and it was... They were, you know, people are in the street rolling around and eating whole pigs, like total insanity. And I realized, and that's happening contemporaneously with all of the settings of my story. And that's something I had no idea about. But what a fascinating thing to put into the work. So the same is true of historical fiction, that there's a lot of world building you have to do in a sense uh, in order to, you know, and it's not because some stickler of a reader is going to check you on the accuracy of something. It's because the real world is pretty interesting. And you might find some details that not only inject your story with a bit of life and vigor, but are accurate. Um, There's that saying that truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. And that certainly appears to be the case now more than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. One thing, I mean, just to relate to you on the fact, like the fascinating things you find, I am one of, I mean, I read quite a bit every day. And I, I give myself permission to go onto Wikipedia whenever I'm curious about something that's come up. Um, I have a tablet that is stripped down that all I can do is do uh, consult research things so that I don't, you know, it's it, it's not going to take me away from that prime reading time. But fascinating stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, and I find when I write fantasy and have fantasy ideas that I derive it from things that I've picked up from our history and our own tapestry, that's where all these rich details are. Whether you're writing something set in this world or a made-up world, I mean, look at uh, George R. R. Martin's work, it's The War of the Roses, rendered um, through, you know, it's a, in a, in a made-up world, but it's it's all derived from the same history, and, and to some extent, I think many, uh, I think Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time was built a lot around the Civil War and mm-hmm. or, or earlier... Yeah, US. He, he borrowed from so many different traditions. I mean, 
yeah mm. different mythologies different uh historical battles in the u.s uh mm. actually that's interesting that, that you bring up robert jordan because there is a note here that i wanted to talk about um but before i get to that there is something else that i wanted to bring up in regards to something you said earlier john about your friend who plays DD and is a robust world builder and from that is able to extract great stories and that is that regardless of if you're building a fictional world or if you're doing historical research or contemporary research trying to build a setting for your story the, the the same risk of world builders disease exists no matter where it is that you're writing and in what setting you are creating um, because at the end of the day the world isn't the story and that is the definition of world builders disease I have a friend who is super creative um, really uh, thoughtful guy you know voracious reader uh, he he draws a lot he plays video games he's got a really active mind and an active imagination and once he he sat me down to pitch me a story that he came up with he thought it was like a really cool idea and he just started rattling off different settings um, and they were all very cool each of them could have held a wonderful and unique story but at no point during his quite long pitch um, did he actually have a story to tell and I think that that is the heart of the matter and that is why the whole iceberg metaphor is is kind of inadequate for talking about what world build what the purpose of world building is okay. it the, the the notion of believability doesn't hang on whether or not you've made a lot of decisions that the reader doesn't know about the the the, the believability itself hangs by a very thin thread on how accurately and honestly you are able to portray a character's response to a feature of your world and i said that earlier but i think that it bears repeating because your world building can be extraordinary and beautiful but if you do not have characters that are believable that populate that world then it is flat it is the reaction of people that brings life to settings and uh it does not matter how much of the iceberg you build if the characters you write know that the rest of it is there. One thing I want to throw into that, um, I mean, I've been reading a lot of Wikipedia to the point where I'm starting to see the story, the narrative structure of Wikipedia. And the thing that I always find so neat and where I'll like tell people to look up an article is when it's about something that happened or the life of someone. Mm -hmm. And in a way, those are the, 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 nuts and bolts of a story so when you're exploring world building like that is a fascinating approach to take i mean i've done some world building just just my own wanting to feel my way out uh with this wiki as i was learning it um and what i did is i i started writing about a culture but as i wrote about the culture i started thinking about the people and the way they like they live and then i started thinking about the lives of individual people and out of that came a person the story of a person, a revolutionary, and how the society changed and why it stopped. But it was like this one person's story, and at that moment, it was like that quest out of that emerged a story. And, and so I think when you're when you're doing world building, trying to think about where a story fits in, like for um, I think this is the same process my friend uses. I mean, he writes about his world, and out of that comes this fascinating event or character, and then he wants to write the story. So I think, but that's the thing. If you're just writing, making settings and figuring out religions and the way people live and you're not digging into the details of people and events, 
then it's tough to to t- convert that into story in any form. Yeah, yeah. I, I should probably qualify also that I don't mean to knock world building. I think it's a, it's it's one of the things that I mean. There's a reason why I I trend towards genre fiction, right? Because I love these fantastic universes that we create and and the opportunity that we're given in them to explore minutia of human. Uh, they're just like humanity and the human condition through these interesting lenses and filters. Uh, it might be reading about an orc or something, but they're still like fundamentally we connect on a human level with the people that populate worlds, no matter what those people are. Um, so world building is a vital and beautiful thing. Um, but it is all, everything that we do is in the service of transmitting uh, narrative to readers to anyone it's an asynchronous opportunity to communicate some abstract thing uh about being a person about having consciousness and it's like sure not all stories are that deep right like stories can just be entertaining and in fact for the most part that's what i like them to be but even when they're entertaining those things play a role um and if you build a world that challenges things that we see as everyday and normal in some capacity that is something that is very intriguing to a lot of readers so when you do build uh something extraordinary and you populate it with people whose reactions to it make it seem ordinary that's the thing that's really appealing to readers because you're like what no this is crazy like this guy's like look at harry potter right um people who think it's really normal uh in in the context of the world that like you know hermione granger builds uh creates a purse that is like infinitely deep and she can carry all of their things uh, inside of it. And like, how cool is that? What a crazy thing. And like, by that time in the story, it's normal. But that's an, like, that, that is so cool. You know, she's got her beaded bag full of everything in a library. And there's books falling over inside of it. Like, those, those little moments, right? Um, and you might not know who came up with that internal expansion charm. You might not remember in the moment that that's the same charm that, uh, that the Weasley dad used to expand the trunk of his flying Ford Anglia. Little things like that. But those, those moments provide a richness to speculative fiction that isn't available elsewhere. And that's why world building is such an important part of what we do. Um, but I think the catch here is whether or not you do that massive amount of world building is up to you. And at the end of the day, what matters is the people in your cool world. But what I want to ask is for you as a reader, when you do find out that there is not, not only is there a complete iceberg, but it is robustly complete. And I think the great example is Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. A book was released uh, this year called The Wheel of Time Compendium, which is essentially a dictionary of, uh, I think, I think I have it on my bookshelf here. No, no, it, it must be in there. Maybe it's in the other room. Anyway, it is like a full-on encyclopedia of the world of the Wheel of Time, and it is extraordinary. He's got he's got linguistic stuff. He's got historical stuff. He's got battle stuff. He's got magic stuff. He's got different eras of the world stuff. He's got information about the evil people, the good people, the gray area people, different cultures, different. Just like it's so overwhelmingly massive, um, and I just kind of wanted to know how that makes you feel like how, how you feel as a reader when you find out that an author has put in uh, an extraordinary amount of detail and time and effort into creating an enormous and uh, full world. Um, 
story. Uh, I guess my mind went in a certain place, and I read a lot of Star Trek books, mm-hmm. uh, and you can always tell when an author has really researched the Star Trek universe, because there's over 50 years worth of uh, movies, TV shows, and some of the books even reference the video games and other books themselves, and you can tell which authors really know their stuff, but sometimes it comes across as, um, I don't know if this term is used outside of Star Trek, but fan wank. No, no, um, makes sense. Where, like fan service, yeah? Yeah, you're servicing the fans. And so, like, I had I couldn't couldn't finish one of the books that I was reading recently because it was basically, I'm going to jam all of this 50 years of world building into one book to, like, make it awesome for the readers. And for me, it was like, okay, you're referencing that show, that show, that show, that character, that character, that book, that movie, that video game, that book. And it just became so overwhelmingly dull that I couldn't finish it. And it's very rare for me to not finish a book. Mm. Um, but I know that's not what you were getting at, but that is where my... No, that's really went. interesting. Um, I, t- to piggyback on that, I think that... Um, are you are either of you familiar with Ready, pa- Ready Player One? Just by title only. So Ready Player One... Uh, is a book by Ernie Klein that, like, uh, it, Steven Spielberg is not making it into a film. Uh, and the premise of the book is very cool, but the book is, by and large, 80s references. Uh, just, like, and there are references within references and egg, Easter eggs within Easter eggs, and it's just, like, there is so much pop culture reference in that book. And that is a big part of the book's narrative. Like, it's important for the book because... Uh, in in the story, there's a, a young man, and, and there's a persistent video game world that was created by some genius, and they all log into it, and that guy was obsessed with 80s pop culture, so everyone becomes obsessed with 80s pop culture to try to find the treasure trove that the creator of the video game left before he died or whatever. Um, I, I definitely misrepresented that story just now, but for the sake of uh, brevity. But I think that for some people, it was just a little too too much fan wank. It was just like, okay, we get it, dude. You liked the 80s. My God. Like... <laughs> Please stop. But but some for some people that was that was like everything they've ever wanted from a book was something that would acknowledge their love of eighties stuff, um, and so it had a sort of it had a divisive effect. People either loved that he demonstrated that knowledge of the world that he had built, and people also felt that it was a bit uh, cumbersome or or dishonest, even maybe. Um, so going back to the question, uh, when when an author does put in the effort to to build an enormous world or to include a lot of referential material for you to to kind of like get and then like wink and point at the author, how does that make you feel as a reader? Well, I mean, for me, it would depend on the book, but for that's one thing that drew me to fantasy. Um, first fantasy book I ever read was Tolkien's work and Mm -hmm. lord Lord of the rings in particular like coming to those appendices in the back was just like i i was so excited reading those things because for me it was like the author restrained himself and and i felt everywhere where i went through the book that i just wanted to know more i wanted to i wanted to know more about what was east of um mirkwood and the land like you know there's this sense of depth that he knows this world or could explore it, but doesn't. His story only takes you here. Wheel of Time is like that, too. I used to get excited every new book. I would right away flip to see what map, what city they were going to 
draw in there and I would get I would look forward to getting to that page. So there's this sense that he has this world, this like a, this fractal that he could keep exploring and the story is only going to take you to so much of it. And I think if the author's doing that then um then indeed, you know, like there's no end to getting more of it. So really at that point it's sort of like being able to look at their notes is like that ultimate level of completion. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean you're only going to get so much, right? Uh, I mean, I would, that's for myself. I mean, I'm writing a fantasy story where I'm aware the world is going to be deeper than the narrative and I'm going to work on the world in a wiki and that's just going to be something that's available to people to read if they want, but I really don't care. I'm not going to publish that as an encyclopedia. I I just see it as part of a process. Um, But I think the the same value is there. So if there is someone that is, just digs everything and they want to they want to read everything they can beyond the books there you go and this thing will be growing as as i go um you know that's so so i i think for me that's i love that when when an author will do that because yeah. it shows the restraint that they they weren't obviously they didn't dump all this stuff in there or you wouldn't have you probably would have stopped reading yeah because it would have been information overload you know i think I, I completely agree with you. There is, there's something that's so inspiring when you know that a writer has put in an enormous amount of effort to to make something authentic in their way. Um, and you know, I think that the thing that we felt cheated by, perhaps in this Star Trek book, and maybe in some people felt in Ready Player One, is that it seemed like sort of the low hanging fruit. Um, you know, the world building wasn't sophisticated. It was just kind of a lot. Um, pardon me, but um the star trek book it sort of just went overboard like mm-hmm. every single reference this author could think of somehow related to the plot and like it was just too much whereas if like you use the word authentic if it had been more authentic and how it was put together and how it was portrayed it would have made a world of difference you know i'm surprised we haven't brought this up uh in this entire episode and we are bringing it up at like the tail end which is appropriate given our prompt but I think that Brandon Sanderson is the best contemporary example of an author who does extraordinary world building, but does not uh, overload his stories with it and does not uh, beat his readers over the head with the sophistication of his world. Um, he is building what might become the most complex uh, fictional universe of our time. Uh, it certainly rivals Tolkien in terms of its complexity. Um, the the level of depth, the layers within layers of the different magic systems, the connections between each of his series. But the point that Brandon Sanderson frequently made when he was pitching his books to people and when he talks about his, his, his large-scale world, which is called the Cosmere, is that any reader, no matter how much of his work they know, can hop into any of the books in the larger series at any time and still enjoy a good story. And that is his goal. So if you want to read the Mistborn series, you don't have to know anything about the 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 way of kings if you want to read uh warbreaker or elantris or any of the other books he's written uh within the cosmere because he's written stuff that's not in that in that world uh you can read it and you can have an experience that is that is wonderful uh mysterious and full of magic but there is a deeper story that is so convoluted and there's so many characters and there's so much world and there's so much history and you can dig forever and there is still stuff to discover he i mean there is like there is a there is a wiki that is being managed by his fans called the Coppermind, and uh, and that's na- based on a feature of, of Mistborn. Um, 
but it is it is extraordinary how much information is packed into his books and there's a lot of easter eggs in there like there's characters that hop between worlds and you don't know that until you read a number of the series but those characters play roles in those books in a way that does not make that lack of information on your part any less enjoyable like there's a character who is the same person in the Mistborn series and in the wheel uh and in the uh the way of kings and he's a great character in both books and if you don't know that he's the same guy in both books it's okay he's still great um and so I think that Brandon Sanderson is doing an extraordinary job of building that enormous iceberg, but also making sure that it's about how the characters that populate the planets in his universe respond to the world that he's built. Um, and so I'm going to hop right into our prompt, which is Brandon Sanderson is a professor of uh, creative writing at uh, Brigham Young University in Utah. And he teaches uh, a class there on, you know, science fiction and fantasy. Um, and there, he puts up the lectures that are all uh, filmed on YouTube for free. So you can watch Brandon Sanderson's lectures on world building about how he approaches it, his theories behind it, the limitations that he sets himself, the way that he talks about why he sets limits so that characters have interesting reactions to those limits. Um, it's It's a super helpful resource. I think that... His approach, even if you don't like the books that he's written, his approach can be helpful to you because it's just a framework for creating a world and for building tension in a world that you think is cool. Um, so my recommendation there is to watch Brandon Sanderson's lectures. I will include a link to uh, that channel with all of its lectures in the liner notes. Um, but do either of you have any uh, final thoughts before we, we let our readers go a bit late? I keep saying readers, but it's listeners. This is not a print thing. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're good. I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I do I do want to say one final thing. I suppose because I realize as you know thinking back about the way that I talked about it in this episode, uh, even if I tried to qualify it, I may it may have seemed like I was knocking world building as less valuable. Uh, I want to make sure that that people know uh, that are listening that world building is is such a big part of what we do as speculative fiction writers. Um, it's the thing that usually drives us to write speculative fiction. Like, as a group of people who like to write fantasy and science fiction, the reason is because of those cool things that we read as kids or even that we're still reading now. And those cool things are often directly connected to, inspired by, or straight up just the world building. Um, so world building is an absolutely vital part of the craft that we all enjoy so much. Um... And the point that I, I hope I was able to make without sounding like I was disparaging is that the thing that really makes it feel real is when that world is populated with real people. Um, so thank you, podcasters, for joining me. Thank you, listeners, as always, for joining us. And we will see you next time. <laughs>